to connect to pods commercial services group recruitment podcast for job seekers and employees alike welcome to the first episode of our connecting to people series we thought it'd be great to have an interview that followed the timeline of someone who has just started looking for a job all the way to getting an interview for a job they've been hoping for today we're talking with stephen hoban Stephen, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello all, my name is Stephen Hoban. I'm Services Director for Commercial Services Group, where operationally oversee our managed service and joint venture initiatives and our externally facing trading brands. This is our full and uncut interview of Stephen Hoban. If you'd like to listen to each section in individual chunks, then look for episodes 3.1 to 3.4. The first step of anyone's journey would begin with networking. So Stephen, without further ado, a simple question with a not so simple answer. Why should you network? Yes, it's a really good point, Joe. I think it is an area that a lot of people don't take as seriously as they should in terms of their ongoing career progression. I think it's widely recognised that people who network efficiently and very much proactively engage with their network do tend to progress better through their careers. I think it was statistically broken down by by a business uh, professional and widely kind of used in seminars, etc. There are about 10% of of your progression is down to being competent and, and good at what you do. About 30% is down to your uh, professional brand and how you're perceived by others. And, and the remaining 60 is down to networking and your ability to do so effectively. So I think it plays a very important role in in your overall career and the, the, the life cycle of your career. But actually, I think there's many other reasons why being involved in networking activities is important. I think if you work in a very specialist skill area, it can allow you access to similar, similarly minded individuals where you can share best practice or the latest intelligence in the market. And that can help you know, indirectly widen your skill set. Um, and obviously the, the obvious one is you know, it widens the number of opportunities available to you if your network is extensive and actively engaged. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it is important. I think also it's important to recognise there is a skill. Um, different people, I think, network to different levels uh, as a, naturally, uh, but to really, you know, maximise the effectiveness of network, network, it does take time. It takes investment to, to not only make those appropriate connections in the first place, but to build those relationships and, and have an effective network. So it is a skill that you should treat as part of your job search, but overall your overall career planning is to invest the time and learn the skills to, to truly you know, network effectively. Brilliant. Thank you. I mean, 60%, that's a pretty significant stat to ignore. Um, for many of our listeners that may be panicking hearing that, can you settle their nerves and say, when does networking truly begin? Are they too late? Yeah, oddly enough, I, I, I've only recently been exposed to that stat myself, so I can I can empathise with everybody thinking, hold on, I've missed a, a huge chunk of, of you know how I could have been progressing my career. So I understand that. And I think the important thing is to recognise that there's 
you know, you haven't missed the boat. You can be right at the beginning of your career. You could be partway through or, you know, as, as I may be, kind of in a mature career position. But there's still many benefits to networking. So even if it's something that you, you know, think, oh, well, I, I didn't recognize that. It is something I need to work on. It's not too late. I think when does it begin? Well, actually, it begins... It, with with every interaction you make, really, um, well, maybe not every interaction, but certainly every business interaction. So it's kind of with every colleague that you come across, every customer you deal with, every potential client that you may or may may or may have spoken to or developed a long-term relationship with and even some prospective individuals that you know aren't in your network yet but you can see through uh, what they do on a daily basis perhaps a role that's very similar to yours or they are recognized experts in a particular area or influencers or whatever you would call it so i think from the minute you understand that it's an important role then that's the perfect time to start it's not too um, disastrous to suddenly think well I've never really been involved in this so you know now I'm going to have to replicate the last 20 years and make up for it um, but it is it is an amazing statistic and it did take me by surprise but I think once you know that you can look around probably in your own experience and see you know individuals that have progressed um, and think well I didn't really understand why they have maybe you know, got that job that I could have went for but we do whether, whether it's a, a British thing I don't know but certainly there's a little bit of a hiding behind our own bushel so we kind of believe that if we just go about doing our job diligently and do a very good job then the career opportunities will come our way and for some people that that does happen and for some really progressive organisations they have things in place that recognise talent coming through their organisations and are very proactive in managing that but actually some places aren't and sometimes you know companies that perhaps aren't as progressive can not deliberately hold people in certain positions but are they genuinely looking to progress someone who's highly competent in an area particularly if they've got a skill set that is you know going to be difficult to replace so I think you do have to take ownership of your own career, even if it's right at the very start of it. That's not to say you have to have every stage mapped out, but you know to know that you want to progress and to build that network around um, a network that might help create or support those opportunities, whether directly, as in, yes, this person's the hiring manager for a company I want to work for further down the line, or just this person is clearly an expert and well-renowned in their field. So, you know, being connected to them and sharing content that they then like, for example, on social media, that adds a kind of credibility to yourself. So I think it's never too late, but it's a case of, you know, recognising it as part of the puzzle and trying to, you know, find the strategies to give it the time it deserves, I think. Amazing. Thank you. So based on that answer, it sounds like there isn't really a good or a bad time or place to make a business connection. Whenever you find someone in the relevant sector or even just a similar position that you're after, make the connection and grow your network. But for those of us that may feel like they're falling behind and want to speed up a little bit with their networking, are there any places they can go to start creating their own network? as quickly as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there are certainly 
well, particularly now, more than ever, with things such as, uh, you know, the, the rise of things like webinars, in, in perhaps maybe 10 years ago, if I look at my career, it would, it would have to be around attending, you know, large large um, conferences or seminars, you know, a trip to London and a day out to try and maximise. It's very difficult for people to do that, particularly in in less senior roles because, you know, you can't really say to your, your hiring manager, you know, I want to go to London because I, you know, potentially want to network with all these people. But the access to various groups, uh, seminars, webinars, etc., that are now virtual and online, really has widened that um, and the amount of I suppose content for want of a better word that's available you know whether it be on YouTube TED Talks individuals who you know post I'm not saying you necessarily link with everybody that looks great on YouTube what I'm kind of saying is the amount of content or the connect the potential touch points of finding out who these people are is much wider than it was uh, but yes you know on a more basic level it might be as simple as finding small groups of like-minded individual business owners in a local area uh, with a view to networking to drive uh, greater sales generation opportunities on a on a larger corporate level it might be you know looking at individuals who have same the same roles as you do in different organizations and likewise through uh, if you look at LinkedIn for example there's a huge number of groups uh, that you can follow there's organizations you can follow and um, there's trade magazines that you can follow and the ability to share articles yourself that you may have read either in a book or you may have picked up from you know the, 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 the news or the press if you think it's relevant to your network then sharing things and being proactive in that network is is now in many ways easier than ever it still takes the work but the 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 touch points that are open to you are significantly more through the rise of of social media than perhaps they were 10 20 years ago when it would be you know perhaps a bit more of a face-to-face old school style way of networking excellent thank you so would you say that there are any important factors to consider when trying to create these business connections? Yes, I, th- I think there is. I think that there needs to be, so, so first of all, there needs to be a kind of reason for the connection, you know, just suddenly deciding that you don't think your network is is very large. So if I, if I just take LinkedIn or Facebook as an example, to suddenly rush out and try and connect with everybody doesn't necessarily mean you will, you will have a good network. I think the important thing is to focus on having a good network not a large network I think it's also important to be open and honest with people that you are engaging with so and also to do so on a reciprocal or mutual benefit arrangement so you may not for example want to reach out to you know the chief exec of Google and say you know I'd love to connect with you because at some point I want to get a job with your organization I mean that might actually work I don't know but you know it's more likely for example that you may reach out to uh, say you're a procurement manager you may reach out to various other procurement managers across your sector whether that be you know something very specific like FMCG or recruitment or uh, public sector and say you know 
I'm, I'm really keen to connect with like-minded individuals that work in the same space for the sharing of sharing of ideas and collaborating in the future. And you know, when someone then comes back and, and makes that connection with you, it's perhaps then about you know taking that the next stage. Can, can we find five or ten minutes to catch up to see that where you know where our interest is interests might be congruent and where there's a space for us and part of that is i think this is my personal approach but part of that is about understanding how you may be able to help them because there's a lot of relationships and a lot of stuff on linkedin for example that i'm sure we all get which is you know i'd like to connect because i want to sell you something um now that's that's a sales generation call as a kind of replacement from from a cold call. Whereas if you're trying to create a relationship where it's can I have some time to find out what sort of thing might be interest of interest to you, should I come across it, then that builds a builds a relationship based on reciprocity, which you know is often more effective in terms of creating a long term a long term relationship because. You know, if you can do something for somebody else, then human nature kind of dictates at some point they'll be more inclined to want to do something for you. And that something might be make another connection that might be even more relevant for you. It might be, you know, giving some sort of uh, credibility to, to content you share. It might be, uh, you know, might be as literal as making you aware of an opportunity that's coming up in their organisation. But I think it's it's kind of important. I suppose the point I'm making is you want to build a network that's around much more than just who can I, you know, who can I reach out to the next time I'm looking for a job. It's much more multifaceted than that. If you were, if you truly want it to be a really strong, strong and open network. Great. So if you build networks, you should find openings where there wouldn't have been any otherwise. A network contributes a significant amount to finding your dream job. So make sure you get started. Not every job can be attained through a network that you create. Or sometimes your connection may like you, but not know of your expertise and skills. So they may still ask for a CV. That being the case, to you, Stephen, what makes a good CV? Yeah, I, mean, I think you're absolutely right that even if the network came through and you know, it's more likely that it would generate an opportunity rather than, oh, you know, Stephen, we get on so well on LinkedIn. Could you just come and work for my company next Tuesday? So it's, it's more likely that it would connect you to an open vacancy or make you aware of some recruitment activity that an organization was doing. But I would still expect that you would have to, you know, go through a process, a process of application via online or an, an inevitable at some point, unless it's a very rare occasion, at some point, submitting a CV. So the question of what makes a good CV inevitably will come up. And this is this is a very tricky question in a few ways, in a sense that it's a really subjective concept, the CV, and in, in some ways a little bit you know, potentially outdated. And, and I suspect in the, over the next few years, automation will... May, may diminish the role of a CV, but right now the CV is still the stock and trade of looking for work. So to answer what makes a good CV, there's some there's some really basic stuff, I think, you know, we have wonderful tools available to us now with IT, but I still think in my experience, the best CVs aren't overcomplicated. They are concise. They are to the point. They aren't overly lengthy um 
I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that you know anything longer than two pages is is a travesty. But uh, certainly, you know, if, if you're very experienced, you don't want to be putting together a 13-page CV. To, um, but I think the key thing, if there was one factor, what makes a good CV, then it is directly relevant to the role that you're applying for. And I think that that is key. I think more and more as we've moved to, or as the role of the recruiter, the recruitment agency has risen. And I suppose more recently online direct application to organizations through some sort of uh, portal or online application that doesn't involve speaking to a person, then the CV needs to be really honed to the actual vacancy. You can create a, a, a generic CV that I would call your starter for 10, if you like, and this may form the foundation of the later, more specific CVs that you apply to, and it may be perfectly adequate to start those first conversations with with the agency that you're working for, or the agency they want to apply for. But it's important to recognise that when you're dealing through an agency or when you're dealing through an online portal, that it is absolutely key to be as relevant for that job as possible. If you have, for example, a certain uh, skill set that this job asks for uh, or the agencies required on their advert, if it is tucked away in page four of your CV, then the chances are either through the time and attention that the recruiter will give it or some sort of semi-automated algorithm that it's unlikely your CV will be pulled out for that that level of experience. So it's important to recognise the same as um, a, a word search and Google, you know, relies on certain algorithms to pull that web page to the top. The same happens with your CV. Most recruiters, I can't remember statistically what the industry says, but it's somewhere in the region of a recruiter's going to give you a CV somewhere in the region of 10, 11 seconds of, of their time. And if they're not, for want of a better word, hooked or engaged or bought in to read further, then there's every chance that you, you, you won't progress past that stage. And similarly, you know, while some people may may argue that an internal recruiter who's an organ for an organization will do a more thorough job, even if you take that 10, 11 seconds and make it 20 seconds, you know, you're still only getting a little bit of someone's time to grab their attention. So to, to make a good CV, it needs to be tailor-made for the opportunity and specific to that opportunity. And that that is a good CV, in my view, anyway. Fantastic. Thank you. So following that advice, people have got a great idea of what they should be focusing on to make a good CV, at least in your mind. But when it comes to making their first CV, the starter 10 CV, as you said, the more generic one, do you have any advice on where to start when building that CV? There's many templates available if you just wanted to start. You've got a blank sheet of paper, you have no real idea how to start this. You haven't, you either haven't needed one for the 20 years of your career or you're just starting out and you really don't know where to start. And there's plenty of, of good templates available. 
But my key thing would be start with something simple. There's lots of templates out there that will have some sort of graphic overlay. They will either navigate everything down the left-hand side. They will navigate down the right. They will turn it almost into a PowerPoint, which, you know, if you're applying for a role as a graphic designer and your, your potential audience wants to see creativity in work, absolutely they have their place. But for most people, most you know, standard employees, a CV that isn't going to cause somebody a huge amount of trouble in terms of opening through format or some uh, bespoke software would be a must. So you can't really do much wrong with Word, you know, standard Word document. Uh, I think also let's not get too creative with fonts. You know, it doesn't necessarily matter what fonts you choose, although I wouldn't, you know, necessarily be over a lot, but the standard ones would probably, in my view, work best. But certainly you might only want one font in your word. You know, you might want to use italics and bold for highlighting certain areas, but I'll stick with one font. And um, just to address size while we're on, um, the, the, there is a kind of mythology that two pages is the optimum CV. I think really for, for most people, other than people really starting their career very difficult to encapsulate all your experience on on two pages i think probably i would start to get a little bit wary or concerned if i was getting past four pages but i think certainly somewhere between two and four is a very comfortable space for a cv particularly for someone who is you know has been working for a number of years um so you start off really quite simply really so you know you start off with name um i wouldn't necessarily have education as the next thing but what i may choose to do is in the top of the cv perhaps under the name i may mention certain really specific qualifications so f for example if somebody was a qualified accountant or uh, you're applying for an engineering job and somebody had you know the relevant engineering qualification uh, or likewise if you had maybe an MBA or something like that, but it would very be, you know, really abbreviated in terms of initial only, perhaps under the name. Then you may or may not want to put on your contact details. You may just want to include your number and email. I'm not really sure at this stage putting your address on, you know, it also helps protect your your identity, you know, your ID a little bit in terms of GDPR at that stage. But um, then I'm a big fan of a profile area and I'll, I'll, I'll come back and if you can remind me, Joe, to talk a little bit more about the profile because I think it, it's it's an important tool. Then really you work through your experience from most recent backwards. If you are relatively new to the job market and say you have 10 years work experience, then you may want to put every job on there. Well, you would want to put every job anyway, but you may want to have a descriptor for the last three roles you've had that have taken you 10 years. If you have been, find yourself, you know, have been employed for 25 or 30 years, then you may want to cover off the last one or two or the last 10 years work, depending on how many jobs are involved. And then after that, I think you can really just you don't really need a little much more than just a job title and the, and the dates of, of the duration of that work. Um, I can't think off the top of my head, there may be some really specialist areas that you know people will be interested in your very early career. But I, I think really, if you've covered off your last 10 to 12 years, I think that's the experience that most employers are gonna be, are gonna be looking at. 
Um, and I think when you when you start to write down what it is you do, a good place to start is your job description. Of course, that's you know a nice little place to pull off some of the immediate tasks. But I think one thing that feeds into being specific is try to extend well there's two things so you're trying to be specific so where you can be specific and quantifiable or qualifiable i think that that is really important so an example i would say there is you can put you know i manage a team but there's a big difference between managing a team of two and managing a team of 55 so i would be specific so you may want to say you know i have extensive mind management experience i currently manage five direct reports and indirectly 42 staff across three divisions that's a more complete answer likewise you may be involved in a program or a project to save money so then if you can go on to say you know i implemented a new project to to not implement a new procurement system and that procurement system saved us 11.5 percent equating to 1.2 million pounds again more specific so when i started my career too long ago to to mention but one of the sales tools that we were taught as as a recruiter was an idea of what's called features and benefits and i often while i think redundant as a sales tool i think it's always held its place while trying to put together a cv so everything i write down or what i encourage others to write down on their cv i think features and benefits so the features are what you did so if i use the man management example again the feature is i i manage a team the benefit is what are the specifics and what is the potential benefit to the organization now sometimes there won't be a benefit per se and it will be a matter of fact statement as in i manage four four direct reports and 45 indirect reports but then there's other things that you might be able to extrapolate through to a benefit so an example would be um i have extensive experience of managing and motivating teams i manage a team of five people five direct reports with 45 in-depth reports and over the last two years i have increased performance of that team by five percent and i've reduced staff turnover by 25 percent so therefore you're now giving whoever's viewing your cv you're giving them a couple of things you're giving them some real specifics that they can relate to their business i.e well this job manages 2000 people so is this person potentially at the level i need likewise well this job only manages one part-time administrator so again we might not be on par likewise if the job spec for example says one of the roles is to successfully lead and motivate teams then by adding those additional bits of information it really starts to bring that experience to life for the potential employer who can you know draw direct correlations between some of the things they're trying to achieve with this job whether that be an improvement in staff retention for example um and, and it just sort of allows them to you know start to compare apples and apples rather than apples and an unknown so um i'm not sure i've got a little bit off track there but i, I think that sort of you know detail when you start to put together is important rather than just perhaps write every little you know thing that's on your job description and um, then you think you work through obviously you give a little bit less um time to roles that are further on and that's what will help keep 
you know the length of the CV down. Then towards the end, obviously, I think it's really important to have those qualifications on there. So you'd have your education piece, and I think that's also a space that's you know, isn't just about your formal qualifications. I think it's really important to put other things on there that are qualifications, even if they're not relevant, even if they're not pure academic, for example. So uh, if you've completed things like Prince 2, or if you've completed managing successful programs or other more industry specific qualifications or training courses. And then finally, and I mean, maybe I'm a little bit out of date here, but I, I do think the hobbies and interests area of a CV is still important. I think it adds, you know, a little bit of humanity to to what people do. It creates an area for for common ground if you do, you know, move towards interview or certainly conversation with the agencies. Again, I would be very tempted not to go into war and peace, and and maybe you know people aren't too interested in in things that you've done when you were 14, like your swimming badges or whatever. But, you know, people are probably interested to know if you, I don't know, are a black belt in a martial art or if you've completed a Duke of Edinburgh award or, you know, if, you, if you're if you an avid skydiver. I think these things are, are still important. Um, so I would follow that through. So to go back to the profile area. So, so the profile area for me is, is key. So there's a couple of reasons. I think one is it really helps with the idea of being able to tailor make your CV. So the profile area is where you would you would write down all your experience, but the profile area is maybe a, a paragraph, a couple of short paragraphs, or maybe even a couple of specific bullet points where you could really address some of the key areas that the job description is looking for, or if you're just making that initial approach to uh, an agency, it's where you can really highlight some of your skills and experience. So it may start, for example, you know, um, Stephen is an experienced manager with over 20 years experience in the recruitment industry. Key strengths and experience include, and then you might have managing teams of up to 50 people plus across three geographies or EMEA or whatever you want to put on there. Then you might have, you know, extensive experience of driving sales performance. You might have extensive experience of managing large successful projects and programs, uh, including projects in excess of 12 million, whatever those details may be. And it allows basically to go back to that 10, 11 seconds you've got to get somebody to go, I want to read on. And that's where, if it's the first interaction with an agency, um, and I'm happy to discuss how different agencies work because you, you might pitch the CV slightly differently, but that first interaction, you're working to get the attention of an agency, there's no specific job, then really what it allows you to do is input four or five bullets, the key things that you'll be, that you think are what, what you are bringing to the market. If you're reacting to a job specifically from an agency, then you've got their job description. So, you know, the key things they're asking for in the first four or five bullet points of their job description, that's really where you'd want to be illustrating straight away that you have that experience. Example being, say it's an in-house talent acquisition role, and they may turn around and say, must have experience of managing uh, multiple talent acquisition professionals across Europe, Middle East and Africa. So if you've done that, 
then you would want your first bullet point to be extensive experience of managing talent acquisition teams globally. Okay, recruiters now thinking, well, tick one of the five boxes that I'm looking for. And then you work your way through the rest. Obviously, if you haven't got that skill, you can't do it. And you might want to uh, put some skill on there, the, or skill experience that you feel is comparable. You know, so um, an example might be, must have somebody who has uh, is Prince 2 qualified. And you might turn out that you're not Prince 2 qualified, but you have got managing successful programs. So you would put on something that was comparable or related. You know, you might not be you might have a certain accountancy qualification, they might have asked for another one, but you know that that's the sort of fail. The idea is essentially that, that profile area allows you something that you can tweak quickly so you can react to these different job scenarios without having to rework all of your CV. It's kind of more just bringing to the fore the experience that there is elsewhere in your CV, but bringing to the fore for the attention of, of the audience that you're submitting the CV for. Great, thank you. So it sounds like you're saying that the most important element of a CV is really the content, providing it's tailor-made to the employer and is relevant wherever it can be. You also touched on earlier that not many people include the hobbies and interests section of their CV anymore, and that's really quite an important way of humanising yourself in a CV. Arguably, you could say that it's a way of standing out against other potential competitors for a job. So would you say that there are many other ways that you can make your CV stand out from the others? Yeah, I think it does humanise you. Um, you know, it's... But there's, there's actually... I'll tell you why I think it's really important as well. I think it's really important for people who are entering the job market for the first time or... or you know, very early in their career, because when when you think of a school leaver or even a graduate, for example, and they, you know, they may have experience that is in the dog and duck, or they may have, you know, worked in Iceland or any of those things, which is which is great. You know, that that showing you've had and committed to a job doesn't matter. They shouldn't think, oh well, you know, it's not. I was only a shelf stacker. It's not about that. It's about showing that you held down an employed job for a period of time. But where they, for whatever reason, either their studies or whatever, they haven't really done that, then those interests and what they do can really stand out. So, for example, if you have somebody that has uh, achieved very well in a sporting field, um, it might be that they ended up playing at a high level football or table tennis or whatever. Uh, equally, someone I mentioned earlier, you know, someone who's completed the goal level of the Duke of Edinburgh Award or someone who's um, achieved a high level of a martial arts or someone who's been a scout leader, anything like that, that someone has sustained and committed to over a period of time speaks to what an employer would want. You know, everybody knows that to get a black belt in karate, isn't an overnight thing. It may have taken someone five, six, seven, ten years. Uh, everybody knows that you don't become a top sports person by, you know, not by lacking commitment and drive. And you don't get, again, you know, you don't get a Duke of Edinburgh award for, for going on a two-day course. So all of these things attest to somebody being able to commit to something that they're passionate about and stay the duration. And when you haven't got that work experience to fall back on, those things can be really, you know, they, they can almost do the same job. Um, 
I mean, I remember once when my very early recruitment career, and I was speaking to a lady who, um, when I looked down, she was she was customer service. Uh, individual customer service advisor for a bank, actually. But I'll never forget the lady. I can still, I can still remember her name, but I won't. It's probably about 24 years ago. But when I read through her CV and got to the interests, it turns out that she had competed in the Commonwealth Games and, you know, the list of accolades of British, regional British and international athletics was, was hugely impressive. And it turned out this lady you know, was starting to look to move her career forward because prior to that she'd sacrificed sacrificed her career, but her employer had very kindly allowed her to have that time off to compete. And as her athletics career was coming to an end, she was keen to sort of move her, her work career forward. But I will never forget how impressive it was to see that. And you know that someone who can achieve that has a lot to bring in many ways. Um, so yeah, I think that that is another dimension of where the you know particularly for those that haven't got ten years work experience in their belt that they can really sell themselves if I use dare use the term sell yourself in that that in hobbies and interests area. That's brilliant. I can't say that I would forget an application from a professional athlete in a hurry either. You said earlier that you wanted to go over submitting your CV to an agency and how you can tailor it for them. So would you like to go over that now? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, one thing about the CV that everybody kind of needs to remember and bear in mind is that the danger is that you think your CV, your CV is selling you, of course it is, but when I keep mentioning relevance to the audience, there's no point selling X if the audience is looking for Y, if you know what I mean. So kind of to some extent saying, well, I'm brilliant at this, I'm brilliant at football, it's only good if the person you're speaking to is looking for a football. If they're looking for a rugby player, it doesn't really do you any favours, which is why you need to be relevant. But also, I think it is important to understand that the role of agencies as well. So one of the things that I've heard many, many times over the years is, you know, the agency I work with are no good. They never get back to me. Um, and, and all of these things might be true. You know, agencies like everywhere else have some some good and bad recruiters. They have some better or could be improved practices and services. But I think it is really important to recognize that agencies are there to find the talent for the clients that pay them. So in many ways, I've always thought it's often forgotten that for mo- in most instances, it's, a perf- it's an absolutely free service for the candidate. So the client pays the recruiter to find good candidates. And that's not to say it would be in any recruiter's interest not to give candidates a very good service because if they're not right for this particular job, they might still be right for another job and also they'll speak to other people for various other reasons. But it is important to look at their role because if you were working from an agency that if you're a if you're an entry level or in the early part of your career and you're submitting your CV through uh, job portals, whether it be Read or Indeed or whatever, and they're going to an advert that uh, has been posted by an agency, then that recruiter is probably, probably focused entirely on finding exactly what he needs to send to that client to fill the job to earn his commission. So he probably 
is going to be quite brutal, he or she, is going to be quite brutal in terms of ticking off the five boxes or whatever that the client said they need, going back to the relevance of highlighting these. But you can also expect that if it's if you work in a sector, for example, where there's very high volume of applicants and you haven't taken the time to try and grab their attention, then you probably won't get a call back uh, because they, they just don't have the time. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that that's what it is. When you go about engaging with the agency a different way, which is trying to speak to an individual and explain to them that, you know, you're not you're not applying for this particular job, but you want to have a conversation with them generally about how you can help or how they can help you, then you can enter into more of a relationship with the agency. So they're now thinking about multiple jobs that you might be applicable for. And now they've had a conversation where you've had that opportunity to bring your experience to life and talk about what sort of things, you know, might be relevant, your geographic limitations, your salary limitations. And now you're, you're, kind of better consultant is now thinking about you potentially for all the roles that come through their desk that might be relevant to them. Now, this may reflect some experience of the level of experience of the agency and also what sort of sector they work in. So the, uh, you might find, for example, if they work in a very high turnover, temporary, industrial, white, blue collar setting, that they, they, they're not interested in having a chat with you because what they do is they put, they just find X's and they put X's in front of their boss and they keep doing it. And I suspect, you know, if you really want to be serious about your career, those places, those suppliers, agencies, whatever you want to call them, they have their place, which is, you know, send your CV if you see an applicant or, or a job you're interested in, but kind of don't expect to hear back unless they're interested. The next level is obviously those that do want to engage in your con conversation with you, understand what you're looking for, want to work in partnership with you. Now, you still might get well, you know, they might not be in touch every week. Um, they probably say they will, but they might not be because they get distracted. But you're more likely still to be on their radar. And you can take a little bit of ownership by not necessarily hounding them, but maybe fortnightly or whatever, touching base and saying, you know, hi, Mr. Recruiter, can you remember we spoke about fortnight ago? I just want to remind you my circumstances are still the same. And then as your career progresses, you can start to move up into what is an entirely different sort of level of consultant where you start to get into the realms of, uh, you know, exec search or senior level appointments. And nine times out of 10, they, they are really happy to engage even without a job spec in front of them because the best ones are always looking to make relationships with talent in the market. And, you know, the life is changing for recruiters now because certainly right now, applications are lower than ever post post brexit post covid you know the great resignation whatever you want to call it so they really do need to engage with talent even when you know that talent might not be exactly what they have a job for right now but they their, their relationship is changing but you, you you know you need to be speaking to that more hate to use the word professional because that's I'm not meaning to imply the others aren't but the, you, you need to be speaking to the agencies that are working in that space and want to work in partnership with the candidates they represent and there are some agencies out there that you just have to recognise are posting jobs and trying to fill jobs and your approach to the market and when you go back to what we said about networking and all that sort of stuff, then your approach to the market to look for work is a blended approach across all of those platforms. So I apply to these jobs every day, blah, blah, blah. 
I kind of know I might not hear back, but I think I'm a good match for them. The caveat I would say is please do be a good match. You know, you don't expect to hear back if you'd have applied to be an astronaut and you're not an astronaut. But, you know, if you basically have applied for genuine roles, you might hear back, but you kind of mentally say to yourself, I probably won't hear from them unless they're interested. Then there's the next tier that you say, oh, I want to have some conversations. I don't want to speak to every agency, but I want to you know, do a bit of research. I want to find the three or four good agencies that either work in my specific industry or they've got a good brand reputation in the marketplace. And then you have a different type of conversation. And if you're at the right level of seniority, then that's when you can say, well, actually, I'm going to pick one or two executive partners that are going to go away and actually speak to some people on my behalf where they know there might be movement in that organization, but the job hasn't come out yet. Because you've got to remember in the job market, there's a huge amount of jobs. Never, never see an agency, you know, never come to an agency or even see the light of day because they're either filled internally or they're conceptual in nature that the manager, you know, is talking, he's maybe thinking about a change to his department, but he hasn't formally done it yet. And that's where those better relationships with agencies, they'll know their markets, they'll know which of their organisations are about to go through a relocation or a change that might prove to be relevant for you. So, uh, you know, I think if you just perhaps want to have a better experience of agencies, you just perhaps need to recognise what, which of those level of agencies stroke consultants you're speaking to. And then you get less frustrated because you're not, you know, you're not hearing back all the time. Amazing. Thank you. Just a final question from me on the CV section. Are there any serious do's or don'ts for when building your CV? The do's are, as I mentioned, which is, you know, be, be concise, be specific, be quantifiable and qualifiable where you can. Um, the don'ts, I think, you know, yes, you can be a little bit looser in in maybe your uh, hobbies area, but don't, don't try and bring comedy into your CV. You know, um, uh, jokes might be, you know, funny, uh, funny at home, but they, they don't necessarily translate to to a CV. Uh, one of which I will cover off, and I'm I'm going to be a bit on the fence here, um, is is pictures. So. I, I don't like pictures on CVs. Um, I think with the best will in the world, it does allow people to make assumptions about you rightly or wrongly based on what you look like, which I certainly think people shouldn't be doing. But also culturally, there's uh, there's, there's a number of countries in, in the world where I think they're very much told that a, a, a picture is part of your CV. But I'm not really sure culturally and historically in, in Britain that we like CVs with, with pictures on. Um, am I categorically calling it a don't? Maybe not, but you know, I, I just think it allows people, if, if you look at a world where we're trying to move away from bias and unconscious bias and ageism and, and you know, promote diversity and inclusion and all of those things, I'm not really sure there's a, there's a place for your picture in there that will allow, rightly or wrongly, people to make those, those assumptions about you. Uh, so for me, it's don't. There might be many other people look diff, you know view, view it very differently um i think the other thing is is and it, this is difficult and this is an area i think people do need to get barriers is, is don't ramble you know um 
a lot of people again this is an area of subjectivity here you know I, i'm a big fan of short paragraphs with bullet points some other people i think it becomes very difficult if people write their cvs in paragraph after paragraph after paragraph with no kind of difference in emphasis no use of bullet points no use of specific things you know it just becomes like, like reading a novel and i think most human beings the best one in the world switch off after a couple of paragraphs of, of reading what somebody else thinks is really important um so that's a, that's about it really i think you know so if i was ready to bullet point that i think do's be be concise be specific be quantifiable and qualifiable uh, most of all be relevant don't try not to go above four pages don't include your picture and use bullet points to break up paragraphs and emphasize key skills and experience. The jury is out on the picture one. I might get lynched for that. <laughs> you know, I might feel very differently if I look like Brad Pitt, but as I don't, I have a different view. Well, you always look like Brad Pitt in my eyes, Stephen. We touched on standing out of the crowd with your CV, and this can be a huge challenge when you're going up for a sought-after position. But are there other ways, Stephen, of standing out of the crowd beyond your CV? This is increasingly difficult. I think the way technology plays a role in recruitment now and how everything has become hugely internet driven, it's very, it is increasingly difficult to stand out from the crowd. So at the very start of my career, I worked in you know a, a traditional high street branch for a high street agency and how you interacted with the recruitment consultant on that desk if you like sat there really mattered so little things like you know being punctured for the appointment being well presented being organized bringing the paperwork they'd asked you to bring all of those things spoke to you being organized and efficient and that's now increasingly difficult to do because you know the high street role of agency is diminishing or as your career experience expands that they play less of a role for all the reasons i mentioned you know earlier so you are now in a situation where your first point of contact is, is through a system that is in many ways designed to block you having any further contact so through an agency i, I would definitely say you can bring it to your attention by even adding a supplement or a note so say if you're sending in by email you know it might just be putting a note on there to say you know i appreciate you might not have the time to come back to me if i'm not an ideal match for this role but i would really welcome an opportunity to have a conversation about other opportunities that you may see in the future so kind of recognizing and preempting that i recognize how busy you are i recognize you might not be able to come back to me but i am keen to have a chat and you might even want to after a week or 10 days or so follow that up with a polite call not a haranguing call because you know generally trying to somehow berate the recruiter for not getting back to you is usually not a very good long-term strategy for a relationship with that recruiter but empathizing with them and, and trying to get that conversation is probably something you can do i think if you're applying directly to a company it gets even even trickier now because i think you know many of the, of the processes you go through where the company is involved directly then their their ats system for one of a better word will be very keen to send you an automated message to say you know thank you for your interest in us and due to the high number of applicants we will come back to you if we're interested and and they're almost specifically designed to 
to prevent you doing anything that can stand out. So I think in terms of standing out the application stage, the best thing you can do is focus on that that relevance. And sorry to go back to it, but that relevance of CV is is the key thing to get you that chance. Now, when you get interviews, that's that's a kind of different kettle of fish, and, and there are some things you can do to stand out. You know, they're a bit they're a bit cliche, they're a bit you know a bit old hat. But they still work. You know, punctuality is absolutely key. You know, if you if you get a chance to to be in front of anybody, then I think the old adage is if you know if you're not ten minutes early, you're late. But you should definitely be on time. And I know we you know, we all rely on whether it be public transport or the joys of the motorway. They can always make you late. But always, if you do if you do find that you're running late, so first of all, make sure you build in time to try and minimize the risk of you being late. But ultimately, if you find yourself and you are gonna be late, take the time to give them a call. People will be forgiven if you've given them a heads up that you're gonna be late. Because uh, everybody recognizes that everybody's late once or twice in their life. But if you just don't tell anybody and then don't arrive for a call or don't arrive, which you know, a team's call now, probably more likely than a face-to-face, you've, you've probably got three or four minutes for people to be sat on that team's call and if you log on 10 minutes late without alerting them I wouldn't be expecting anybody to be on that call still um I think people still remember people you know in terms of how how they behave and their attitude uh, both to you know even reception staff if you're lucky to go face to face or your basic levels of, of of courtesy and and all of those things are still really important when you you know have face to face remember to thank people for their time afterwards um and yeah, there's still some of the old school things still still hold. Uh, they, they've changed into a team's environment rather face to face, but but they still hold. You know, if you if you find yourself with a call with an agency um, or or an employer, you know, make sure that you put yourself in the best possible position so you can be attentive for that call. Now, you know, it has become the new norm that I think anybody at any level might at least once in a team's call apologise because their dog's gone nuts or the Amazon man's arriving. So the, the the world has become a little bit more informal, but you know, try to make sure you're somewhere where you, you can connect and, and you uh, it's relatively quiet where you are. Or if, if you know there's going to be a disruption, make an apology for that disruption in advance. These things are still important because, you know, somebody is taking their time to, to speak to you. So you need to recognise that, I think. Amazing. Thank you. Though now more than ever, it's increasingly difficult to stand out, at least in the early stages. Perhaps in an interview, you can make more of an effort. That being said, has anyone ever done something that made them stand out to you during your time looking at CVs or during an interview? It's a tricky one because I've kind of met a lot of people over the years, um, you know, being a recruiter. But I know if I speak more generally, it is still, I think, probably a huge factor that people don't prepare enough so you know people either either feel like they can perhaps just wing it when to the get when they get to the meeting or they they 
think they've prepared but they haven't but if you have a candidate who you speak to and i'll tell you actually no i will give you an example so i was recently speaking to a candidate um and we're looking for them for this particular project we've got and they are actually based in a different country at the moment potentially coming over to do some work and when i asked them what their salary expectation was they went out to explain that they'd actually research comparable salaries for their level of experience and their level of role and then went on to explain to me based on that the kind of minimum that they'd be looking for now the fact they've gone out and done that research for what that salary might equate to in a different country is just it's just an example of how preparation can work so you know what you'll often see is inevitably the, the the interviewer will ask you at some point you know what, what do you know anything about us and you know if your stock answer to that is you know well, i had a quick look at your cv um sorry a quick look at your internet or your website but but no not generally then that kind of says to me as the interviewer well so you knew in advance you were coming to meet me but really you you haven't gone even remotely out your way to to look at anything about our organization whereas if someone was to turn around and say you know yes i've explored your your website in in detail i can see that obviously you work significantly across the world and actually you have four main divisions in the uk and I, if i can understand things correctly i'll be interviewing for this division which is based here and does this then you know all of a sudden you think and somebody has has taken a bit of time to, to come you know likewise you know when someone gets to the end it's again sorry i'm thinking of more examples now when you get to the end and somebody says you know have you got any questions it is possible they're in the interview they've, they've answered every question but it's really good if you happen to prepare and bring a few with them and even if they do then answer all those by saying something like well actually i specifically wanted to ask about your benefits package and i specifically want to ask about promotion opportunities but actually you've covered both those in the interview you're demonstrating again that you came prepared to have a you know a meaningful conversation about the opportunity and it is important that interviewees take an active role in that interviewing process you know it is a two-way street it's a it's a two-way interaction and yes i know the individual may either you know in personal circumstances might desperately want that job but you still should take an active role in the interview as if to say, well, I'm, I'm not saying you flip the other way and you look, you know, so laid back and arrogant that, you know, you'd be doing me a favour by employing me. But there's certainly a middle ground of actually I'm, I'm seriously here because I want to find out if this is the right job for me as well as if I'm the right person for you. And that always impresses you know that someone's taken that time so i suppose to summarize prepare i know it's an old adage i won't do the cliche about failing to prepare and preparing to fail and all that but showing showing that you've taken the time and interest and done some research about the organization about the role you know potentially looking up the individual on linkedin finding out a little bit about them and um, be on time be well presented. Now, well presented doesn't mean, you know, I don't believe in the old adage now that you can't have tattoos and all of that sort of stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. But, you know, there's still a certain level of looking prepared and, and, and presenting yourself well. Um, and then, you know, at, towards the end of the interview, take part in the interview, ask questions, and then thank people for their time. And these, these little touches do, you know, do, do make a difference, I think. Brilliant. Thank you. Is there anything you yourself have done to stand out? 
Well, I think, you know, very early in my career, and, you know, I don't know if this is exactly the thing, but I, I was put in a temporary job and it turned out that it was a Monday. This is my first work experience post-uni, actually, and I was put in a temporary job and it turned out that instead of it being Monday to Friday, it was Monday and Friday, which obviously was no good to me. So the lady phoned me up, um, a lovely lady actually, I still remember her name, Pat Alvey, and she phoned me up and um, told me, and, I, and I'd said, well, that's, that's no good to me, blah. so I stopped the job. But I actually felt that I'd been a bit rude. I hadn't, I hadn't meant to be, but my accent uh, was still quite strong at the time. Uh, so I went in and I actually apologized to Pat, and I said, Pat, I didn't mean to be rude, but obviously working two days a week, it uh, doesn't really work for me. So we then had a conversation and that conversation led to her finding me another job. And ultimately it led to me starting to work for that organization in my first ever recruitment job. So, you know, I'm not, not saying that what I did was anything special, but I'm saying for recruiters, particularly having candidates that recognize what their job is and the challenges they face, and being polite and courteous stands out a long way with recruiters. With clients, I think I'm not always sure what the response will be, but if it's directly um, with a, an employer, it might be more difficult for the reasons I mentioned. But I don't think there's anything wrong, and it also does make you stand out if after you find that you have been un unsuccessful for a job is to go back to ask for feedback so that you can improve on things um, and also again use that as an opportunity to say you know can we have a wider conversation about you know how, how we may be able to work you know how we may be able to help me going forward so again it's just those little things but certainly when dealing with an agency i think it is a recognition that you know recruitment is a tough job um, that's not to say other jobs aren't, but uh, recognising the strains and stresses that a recruiter's under, that sort of level of currency can really engage them in terms of trying to be partners on on how to, you know, how to look for you. The only other thing I think that that I've personally done is when I was going into a different role, I hadn't done that sort of role before I'd done something related, but that not that sort of role. Um, I, I kind of said to the manager, you know, one of the things that they highlighted was I hadn't worked in that specific area before. Um, and I, I, I did have the luxury of actually relocating, so I could afford to do this. I'm not sure it's a wise strategy if you're currently in work, but I, I turned around with them and said, well, give me a go, because I believe I can do this. Um, and if it doesn't work out after six months, then then you can let me go. And so that sort of sharing of the risk, um, I think, you know, helped me out in that instance. Now, I'm not saying you might be as, as cavalier as that, but it might be recognising, for example, that if you want to change your career direction into something that you haven't done 100%, then, you know, <laughs> not maybe moving for a parity of salary or even in some cases if you can afford a slight drop then that's how to transition your cv from your experience sorry from one area to another but again you know that that might be a different conversation uh, likewise i think for people entering the marketplace for the first time 
again, depend on the job and depend on the individual circumstances, offering to volunteer. Um, I did some work where it was actually a friend of a friend and he'd finished a course on, I think it was some sort of digital graphic design course in the, the town we were living in. There aren't the huge amount of media agencies that London had, but he didn't want to go to London. And this alludes to network, I suppose, as well. So his his sister actually worked for me. She mentioned him and I, I connected him with somebody who I knew who ran a digital agency. And that conversation started off with him uh, volunteering a couple of days a week to build up his portfolio to the point where he'd saved up enough money to go to London and ultimately ended up with him, you know, working for two weeks voluntary and then securing a permanent job with them. Well, I suppose that's an example of how networking can work as well as volunteering can work if you're in a highly competitive candidate marketplace. That's great. Thank you so much, Stephen. If we have successfully pieced together all the advice you've given us, Stephen, then we should have a strong network of connections, a good-looking and effective CV, and we're standing out of the crowd. This should lead us to an interview. When you get that interview... Do you have any practices or tips before that interview to settle any nerves? Interviewing, I suppose, in, in a fear level is tantamount to public speaking. Um, and I think one thing that is very important, again, is is that preparation. So I know there's a belief probably that, oh, I've no idea what they're going to ask me. And you, you, you might even hear the term competency-based interview. You know, you're going to attend a competency-based interview. So usually the job description will tell you the, the competencies or if you're working through an agency, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying the agencies, you know, if it's going to be a competency-based interview, can you find out from them what the competencies are? Um, so then between the job description and the competencies, which are usually the softer skills, teamwork, for example, you can start to get a feel for how how the interview might go. You can't necessarily adapt straight away for what their style will be, whether it'll be, you know, a dragon's den style interrogative interview or whether it'll be much more informal interview but what you can do is start to understand well i understand what the job is and i understand the top four or five job will do and i also from the job description understand the key competencies they're looking for so in the same as everything you can prepare for that now that's not to say there might always be you know a curveball or there might be something else but you you generally know that their questions, one way or another, are going to be about those first five or six things that the job description outlines. And at some point, they're probably going to cover, can you give me examples of, and then go through what the competencies are. So you can practice and mentally rehearse those. And mentally rehearsing them inevitably leads to a better performance on the day. So you could, for example, if you were not so senior and you were entering the marketplace for the first time, try and find uh, an adult or someone in a position of authority, or even if not, then then a friend uh, who you can you know, go through a mock interview scenario with and, you know, get used to that idea. They can almost even ask them to be a little bit awkward, be a little bit obtuse, you know, ask them to push you a little bit further. And, you know, going through those things, practicing one, two, three, four times, you will inevitably get better at your answers. Um, 
the if for more experienced people then certainly you know even then you might find someone who's had a, a really um solid career with one employer for example and then just finds through redundancy or changing location that this is the first time they've attended an interview in x number of years it could be equally um nerve-wracking for them regardless of you know their perceived experience and the amount of times they might have done this and again even at that level rehearse rehearse and practice you know understand that what they'll be looking for you to do is is answer the question concisely if you don't understand the question there's absolutely nothing wrong and it's not a sign of weakness and it certainly shouldn't be held against you to turn around to the interviewer and say sorry i don't really understand what you're asking me is there any chance you can clarify the question or repeat the question if you didn't quite get it and they should do that absolutely happily. Um, likewise, in terms of just trying to keep yourself under control, particularly when if you do find this sort of interview, public speaking type thing very nerve wracking, then answer the question and then close that down by saying, has that answered the question or would you like me to go into more detail? Because there's nothing worse and it's very easily done if people are nervous is that they, you know, will we'll just talk and talk and talk after being asked a question and they might have answered the question relatively quickly, but you don't need to answer every question with a, you know, a 20 minute, a 20 minute response. So again, just trying to think, you know, can I be can I be concise while still making sure I've answered all the points the individual wants to, and that again to some extent comes down to rehearsal. A particular technique I always like to adopt or have adopted in the past is I answer I always view the question from a, a larger environment to a specifically what I did. So one of the things people often do is answer with we have done this or we have done that, and and obviously the client wants to know that but they also particularly want to know what you've done so you may for example if you're talking about a project so it may be that you turn around and say as part of the project team we implemented a new recruitment uh, customer relationship management tool we had multiple work streams and we delivered it on time within budget my specific role as part of that project team was to manage the trans the transition of the data from the old system to the new system. And I worked with a small project team that I managed to deliver that on time. So again, you've gone from a kind of, this is what we did in a macro sense down to a micro of what I did. And that holds true really with competency-based questions. So if somebody says, for example, uh, can you can you give me an example of where you've demonstrated teamwork? And you might turn around and say, with our, within our organization, we work on multiple projects simultaneously, and we are often members of different teams to deliver that. One of the biggest projects we delivered is, and I would go on to say it's a customer relationship management tool again, my specific role in that was actually pull together and manage a small team of individuals that are responsible for transferring the work. And this involved managing individuals who were on multiple locations, working different hours across different times zones to make sure the work was delivered. So that's just again an example of how you would adopt a, an overarching view and then a, a specific as to what I did. So that kind of speaking in the first person about what you specifically did is something definitely to bear in mind. Fantastic, thank you. Before you've interviewed anyone, are there qualities you are hoping to see? 
What are the first things that you notice about a candidate? Say if I imagine this scenario in an old school environment where someone's attended the office, if you like, and maybe it'll be the future again, who knows. If, if somebody had arrived 10, 15 minutes earlier when I went to collect them from the waiting room or the meeting room or wherever they were there, that, that would be the first thing you would notice. Again, body language is important, um, but you know, not everybody loses confidence, not everybody swaggers into the room, and you know, it probably wouldn't be appropriate if everybody did. I mean, you may, for example, expect a, a sales guy to do it, but would you necessarily expect um, perhaps, I don't know, an auditor or a finance business partner to come in with the same swagger? Um, so that confidence certainly needs to be there, but it doesn't need to be over the top. But yes, approaching somebody um, with a welcoming smile, you know, a, a nice handshake, not a wrist breaker, but, you know, a good firm handshake, uh, a warm greeting, you know, thank you for your time or hi, hi, Jeff. It's really nice to meet you. Thanks for taking the time today. Um, those sort of things do do inevitably make people relax more. Um, and, and oddly enough, the more nervous the the candidate looks, then then almost in many ways the harder the interview becomes because you know you can almost feel like you you to some extent want to take it easy on that candidate because they're clearly very very nervous. So tricks that candidates can learn to try and hide their nerves is is just working on um, many of the way you see you see politicians that will you know make sure their hands are clasped in front of them when they're delivering awkward messages or whether they'll you know make sure that they hold their fingers and thumbs together as they point forward and and politicians have been coached for many years as to hide micro behaviors in their hands and body language now i'm not suggesting that we all need to become body language experts but it is worth being aware of you know sitting up straight for example uh, if you do fidget with your hands then put your hands somewhere that will help you stop fidgeting that might just be resting them on your knees it might be placing them firmly together um, but I know for example my daughter was going for uh, an interview just for, for one of her colleges and she has a, a, a she, she rings her hands together so you know I've kind of explained to her to just try and make sure that she might just keep one hand on her ring and you know turning the ring in her finger for example might replace the, the general fidgeting of her hands and um, so it's it's kind of just thinking well how can I you know what can I do that might just stop me moving around you know sit sit firmly in the chair get comfortable try not to move around once you've adopted a comfortable position put your hands somewhere where they're not going to be you know overly fidgety if that's something that you do likewise if you find that you're you know, a bit more theatrical in nature and your arms fly all over as you're talking, then gesticulating with your arms is absolutely fine. But just be aware if you do it too much and try and minimise those sort of things. Um, but no, generally speaking, it's about the warmth of an individual. People do do like confident people. Um, and, you know, being warm and friendly goes a long way upon that first that first interaction it's an old adage really but a, you know a really wide smile and, and looking like you're happy to meet somebody is probably about the most important thing after being on time i think great thanks so we've all felt the sting of not getting a job that we felt we were certainly qualified for do people get rejected in this instance because they simply didn't come off too friendly or persuasive enough in the interview ultimately what affects yours or others decision for who gets the job 
I mean, this is very tricky. I still I still think that how people interact with people plays a key role in whether they secure the role or not. I think there's a lot of work being done in the sector to minimise things like unconscious bias that we, we, we know we all have, um, but we're not there yet. And I think how you're perceived, unfortunately, is is still really important. And people who are perceived as warm, open, friendly, perhaps more relaxed and more confident, I would bet probably perform better or, or are more likely to be offered the job than someone who was clearly uh, very nervous or, or clearly unprepared. Now that seems very harsh on on people who don't find being confident naturally. And you know, there's, there's a caveat here, I suppose, that it's probably not that what I've just said probably isn't true in a case where there's a high level of technical capability to a role. You might just find that you've been pipped to the post by someone who either had a broader range of technical skills or one specific skill in more depth, and only really by by requesting feedback can you find out, you know, if, if you've gone, for example, I can't think of one, but there might be an example where an IT programmer, for example, is just, there's another IT programmer that just is better at that particular software or has been using it longer or has been using it in an industry sector that's exactly the same as this one where another candidate is used in a different sector. So, so everything I've said about confidence doesn't really apply, maybe in those highly technical roles, but where it's less technical, so say general office administrative work or uh, customer service type work, then these things really do stand out. So while it would seem unfair perhaps on people who are a little little more reserved, then I think, you know, the, the idea is there is that that's something that they would really be consciously trying to work on. Um, and trying to improve in terms of more time rehearsing interviews, putting yourself in situations where, you know, you can run through dry runs or rehearse. Um, I think em- employers uh, are definitely trying to get better to take away decisions that would unfairly give people an advantage over the job. And uh, ironically, when I mentioned that, you know, it's di- it's very difficult to have direct conversations with with companies directly now, then most people have applied for a job via a company will see that their portal is is almost designed to do that. Uh, And I think the idea is that the CV presented to the hiring manager doesn't have unconscious bias and all of those things in. But right now, you know, it's still very prevalent in what we do and how you present yourself is important and should you know, the, the right time and preparation should be given, particularly if you're going for a job that you think, you know, I really want to get this job. Um, should you find it hasn't gone the way you wanted and you weren't successful? I, I don't think there's anything wrong at all with asking for feedback. Um, I think there's, there's an added point as well that, you know, while you're not right for that job, I think asking for feedback will also show the a particular hiring company or whatever that you know you're committed and serious about about applying for their role so you know there's always the chance it might lead to something else uh, but trying to follow up with that conversation and drop it again through a polite message to the talent acquisition team or the recruiter and say look appreciate i didn't get the job fully understand is there any chance that i could just have some feedback that'll help me improve on my my performance going forward when i apply for similar roles um but right now there shouldn't really be any you know 
fundamental decision for who, who gets the role other than uh, that performance at the interview and, and their technical ability to do the role, really. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, final question from me, then. You've already covered the do's for interviews and then some. Uh, are there any major don'ts, though? Well, I think... <laughs> Again, I, you know, I'm speaking of a, a certain age, and maybe things are, are slightly different. But I, I always feel it's better to approach an interview fairly formal initially. You never really know the audience of or the style of the audience that are going to interview you, and it's very difficult to move from informal to formal, whereas it's much easier to move from formal to informal. So I would always work on the basis that you're going to have quite a formal interview approach. You know, it isn't um, it isn't a wise strategy to assume a, a super relaxed position and open with anecdotes about, you know, how your football team did at the weekend until you've established that that's the sort of audience you're you're involved in so my don't would be don't be late don't turn up super informal and also i think there's a fine line between the confidence as well you know i think there's nothing wrong with a little bit of well there's nothing wrong with confidence at all and in certain roles there might even not be anything wrong with a little bit of arrogance but there's a very fine line between that and you know making an organization fit well unless you've got a skill set that absolutely backs it up but you know to sit there and almost adopt an attitude of well you tell me why i should come and work for your company um may work in rare situations like dragon's den for example but probably wouldn't be the best strategy for most interviews um in in terms of other don'ts uh I would say there's nothing wrong at the end of the interview asking when you might hear, but it certainly wouldn't be appropriate probably to chase up directly with the client. It's certainly like in, in terms of a ridiculous short notice period, as in, you know, email them when you get home. Um, it certainly wouldn't be appropriate to go back to the client for feedback if you're being represented by an agency uh you know you should go back to the agency that represented you and you by all means contact them to say could you just let uh, Anne know that i've you know i thoroughly enjoyed the interview i'd like you to thank her for her time i look forward to hearing two course there's nothing wrong with that but you know chasing up and saying when will I hear have I got the job or chasing up multiple times in a short period of time probably you know won't help your case um don't in interviews I suppose the other thing is it never really looks good if you sit there and just absolutely speak incredibly negatively about your current employer. You may be unhappy for a number of reasons in your current employer and there's nothing wrong with politely outlining some of your disgruntlements, but to sit and, you know, just just highly criticize your your previous employers or bosses or that sort of stuff really doesn't come doesn't really give the right impression if you know what I mean you sort of there's a way to discuss those things and but but not necessarily turn it into just a sort of victimization of other people um 
and that that's about it really i suppose the only other don't i can think about is it's kind of the similar thing really you know what will put somebody off is if, if every reason you left every role you'd ever had was always somebody else's fault or reason because ultimately it sounds like you know you don't be the common denominator in that scenario so you know if, if you are moving to a new role or you've been interviewed because you you are a bit disgruntled where you are probably how you package that is is you know without being dishonest of course but but at the same time how you package your packaging it tactfully will probably work better for you than saying you know my current bosses are, are a bunch of whatever and i'm, I'm looking because i can't stand working there a minute longer um but again it's just a sort of packaging presentation thing really brilliant thank you is there anything else you'd like to add the, the key things I would say through it all is, is really take it seriously, you know, and, and not just for each job you go on or some people might only, uh, you know, they might only find themselves looking for jobs once or twice in, in their career if they're really lucky. And uh, that's fine. And those people are indeed very lucky. But I think the new norm is that, you know, if somebody's been in a job, but most people, I think, move somewhere between two and three years um, for various reasons. But I think if you, you know, if I had my time again and I was starting out again, then, you know, I'd, I'd pay a lot more attention to how seriously I took ownership of my career from from start to finish. We're going right back from, you know, the beginning of this conversation about really understanding the role of, of my personal brand and network and how that plays in starting your career and developing your career right through to each job I went for, you know, really taking the time to prepare that application. And uh, I think we can all look back on things where you know, we saw something and we, we popped the CV through because it was, you know, because it was quick and, and looking back, you think, well, if I'd have just, you know, maybe just taken overnight to, to spend a little bit more time, maybe I would have, you know, been called for that interview when I wasn't. At the interview, the same as everything to do with public speaking, if it isn't something you're really comfortable with, then practice, practice, practice. Um, you know, take the time to understand and get feedback from somebody on dummy runs. Somebody will feedback honestly, you know, someone who might turn around to you and say, well, actually, you know, it's very difficult to concentrate because you were looking all over the room or uh, someone might turn around and say, I was getting put off because, you know, yeah, you were fidgeting with your trouser leg all the time. So, but if you get those that feedback and you're aware of that feedback, then you can start to, you know, look into tools that, that prevent you doing those things. And you only really can get that by feedback because most of these behaviours, you, you don't even know you're doing them, you know, because the, the, by their very nature, they're, they're sort of, you know, their behaviours we're not aware of. So again, that practice, and then when you've got the interview, prepare, you know, and treat the organisation with the respect it deserves that have taken the time to see you. I'm not saying be overly subservient, be absolutely aware of what you're bringing to the table and be confident in that. And the interview should be a two-way street, but, you know, prepare, learn a little bit about the organization, about the individuals who are interviewing you about, um, you know, what sort of 
what they do for a living and you know what the, what the business is about and you know then prepare questions towards the end of that prepare to how you're going to answer the questions you might not get every question they're going to ask you but you know if you feel comfortable answering 80 percent of the questions then you know you can address the the the, the 10 20 percent that that have come at you from nowhere um thank them for their time be sensible about how you seek feedback both in terms of time skills of, of knowing the outcome of the interview but also then following up for that in terms of trying to get feedback if you weren't successful and feed that feedback into your learning for the next you know the next um the, the next time round. but you know always remember that sometimes if you didn't get the job um without sounding too cliched, it might not have been, it genuinely might not have been the right job. Or sometimes, as is the way these days, um, you might have just been pipped to the post by someone who was either just a bit better on the day or, you know, might might just have a little bit more experience, but it shouldn't put you off continuing through the process. But, you know, my top tip would be, you know, take take your career seriously and give each of the stages the sort of time time they deserve, really. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview with me, Stephen. No, no problem, Joe. It was a pleasure to talk, and uh, thanks thanks for inviting me. I know I certainly learned a lot from it, and I'm sure our audience can say the same. I hope that you'll join us on the podcast again sometime. And thank you, audience, for listening to this full and uncut interview. We hope you enjoyed. And if you did, please leave a rating or a comment. If you'd like to leave feedback or suggest episode ideas, then email connectopods at gmail.com. See you next time. <laughs>